This morning we come to the end of the book of Revelation. And as we've gone through this over the past few months, I would guess most of us have found parts of it to be shocking and unsettling for us. We've probably also found parts of it hard to understand. And yet, as we've looked at the climax of the book over the last couple of weeks, we have seen the Bible's most vivid presentation of heaven. And all the way through, the intention of this book is to present us with pictures we won't forget. Some of these pictures are here to warn us. They're supposed to unsettle us. And some of the pictures are here to encourage and inspire us. When we started looking at this, we said Revelation is here to help us understand reality. It's here to show us that the things we see with our eyes are not all there is to see. Revelation shows us transcendent realities. It shows us there's a whole lot going on that we can't see. And it shows us all of this in order to change us. To give us a new perspective on this world. So that we will live differently in this world. And so, as we leave this book, I hope that we don't forget the pictures we've seen. I hope when you and I look at the world in the months and the years ahead, we have these pictures burned on the back of our eyelids. I hope we remember the risen Jesus who walks among the lampstands, tending to his church. I hope we remember the throne in heaven, sovereign over all creation, and the slain lamb, who with his blood purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. I hope we remember the four horsemen, carrying out the Lamb's judgment throughout the course of human history. And the great multitude round the throne, showing us the Lamb will claim every single one of his people. We could go on and on. The dragon, thrown down from heaven, defeated at the cross, and yet still active in this world through his representatives, The beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, also known as the false prophet. I hope you remember the picture of the great prostitute, Babylon, trying to lure us to destruction with her empty promises. And the picture of Christ returning as the conquering king, leading his army on a white horse. And those terrible pictures of God's eternal judgment, the winepress of his wrath, and the lake of fire. I hope you remember the pictures of the new creation, the bride, the wife of the Lamb, finally beautiful for her wedding day. 
And that other picture of the bride, the holy city, made of gold and precious stones. And finally, the garden, with God's throne at the center. The place where his servants reign by serving him. And they see his face. If you and I live with those pictures in mind, they will change our lives. That's what this book is here for. It's here to make our lives different today. And that's what John is going to help us with in the final verses of the book. Turn with me, if you haven't already opened your Bible, to Revelation chapter 22. In the church Bible, it's page 1250, and in the large print, 1939. At this point in the book, the visions are all over. John has been shown a lot, and he has done what he was commanded to do. He has written down what he saw for the churches. These visions were not just some private experience for John, they're for us. Now the visions are over, but the message for the church is not quite over. This final passage tells us what we're to do now. We have these pictures in our heads, so now what? Well, we'll begin to read at Revelation chapter 22, verse 6. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. 
If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. This is God's word. And this passage has one message. He is coming. Jesus himself says it three times. I am coming soon. And because he's coming, this passage tells us we are to trust this book We are to be ready and we are to count on his grace. First of all, in verses 6 to 13, trust this book. John writes in verse 6, The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. The angel here not only assures John these words are trustworthy and true, he explains why they're trustworthy and true. They come from the Lord, the God who inspires the prophets. The Bible insists over and over again, it's not just another book. It's a book given by God himself. For example, 2 Timothy tells us, All scripture is God-breathed. And in 2 Peter we're told, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is how the Bible speaks about itself. That is the consistent message. And so when we come to the Bible, we cannot view it as just another book. It's either what it claims to be, a divine book, in in which case we had better build our lives around what it tells us. Or the Bible is not what it claims to be, in which case it's a fraud and we had better ignore it. What we cannot do is treat it as just an interesting book that might have some interesting things we could learn from it. The Bible does not leave us that option. It's either eternal truth that we can live and die for or it's lies. And the most powerful evidence for the Bible being true is that it's one story. Now, at first glance, it may seem like a haphazard collection of 66 books. But on closer study, it turns out to be one book. And that's all the more remarkable because it was written by around 40 different human authors over a period of about 1,500 years. 
And yet, the end product is one story. A story where early details are constantly being picked up and developed later on. Where early promises are later being fulfilled in history. Often in completely unexpected ways. Ways that couldn't have been predicted. The Bible is one story that takes us from creation all the way through to new creation. And that coherence that we find in the Bible is powerful evidence for what the Bible claims about itself. It claims to come ultimately not from 40 human authors, but from God himself. We can trust this book. And here, we're assured, what we've been reading for the last 22 chapters can be trusted. John is one of God's inspired prophets. And because this book is trustworthy, the future is clear. We have been shown, verse 6 says, the things that must soon take place. Now, it is certainly true that Christians disagree about some of the finer details of this book. But the overall picture is beyond dispute. Revelation tells us Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he returns, he will not come to be slain as the lamb. That's why he came the first time. But he will return as the conquering lion. And his conquered enemies will be condemned justly to God's eternal wrath. But those who belong to Christ will be welcomed into eternal fellowship with God. Revelation has clearly and repeatedly set that picture before us. The future is clear. And this book has been equally clear that the present leads into the future. In other words, our response to these things today determines the future we will experience. We make a fatal mistake, and it's a common mistake, if we think we can live a life that ignores the future and yet expect the future to turn out well for us. In verse 7, Jesus says both, I am coming soon, and blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. This book is not just here for our information. It's here to change our lives today. Well then, in the text, we get this amazing situation where John tries to worship the angel who has been relaying all this to him. It's amazing, not only because John is a prophet, but because he made exactly the same mistake back in chapter 19. And this shows us two things. First of all, it shows us the trustworthiness of this book is not based on John being perfect. He's far from perfect. But we can trust his book because God can use imperfect people to deliver his message. 
In fact, imperfect people are the only kind of people God has to work with. And the Bible makes no attempt to hide or to polish over the flaws of its human authors. And so when we notice the amazing coherence of the Bible, it points us all the more clearly to the divine author. And this incident with John trying to worship the angel shows us something else. Not only that John is a flawed instrument in God's hands, it also shows us how easily we forget the words of this scroll. What is John doing when he tries to worship the angel? He's falling into idolatry. Worshipping something that's not God as if it were God. How could John have fallen into that? After all he's been shown about Babylon, the great idol factory of this world. How could he have forgotten the repeated warnings that idolaters end up in the lake of fire? John could forget because he's just like us. We are all prone to turn good things into God things. Let's for a minute leave the sinful things to one side. Let's just think about the good things in this life. We can turn those good things into God things. We can turn marriage into a God thing. Family. Occupation, rest and relaxation, peace and quiet, human leaders, even church leaders, pride in being British. We are prone to idolatry in a thousand ways. And so we have to constantly be redirecting our worship to the only one who's worthy of our worship. And we have to constantly remind ourselves the present leads into the future. If we won't get serious about worshipping God now, how can we expect an eternity of worshipping him? That is the question behind the shocking words we read next in the text in verse 10. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll. Because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Okay, the last part makes sense. If you are pursuing holiness, keep going. Persevere. That's easy to understand. But let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong? Let the vile person continue to be vile? What's that about? Are we being told here it's too late to change direction? If you're a vile wrongdoer, there's no hope for you. No, that's not the message at all. Later, all the thirsty are going to be invited to come. For the free gift of the water of life. The way to heaven is still open. So if this is not telling people it's too late, what does it mean? 
The message is, if your life now, in fact, your life now does show where you're headed. All of us are on a trajectory. We are on a path to heaven or hell. And our lives show what path we're on. Your life now is taking you somewhere. Keep leading a life of disobedience and you will end up where disobedient people end up. Keep leading a life of obedience and you will end up where obedient people end up. That's confirmed in verse 12 when Jesus says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. If we are defying God in the present, then we are heading to an eternity cut off from God. If we're living for God in the present, we're heading for an eternity with him. If we're only pretending to live for God, then we need to wake up. Because so what if we manage to fool everybody else? God knows the truth. He knows whether we're on the path of the obedient or the disobedient. He knows whether we're living for heaven or living for hell. And we will receive the future we have been living for. It's a tragedy that although verse 10 says, do not seal up this book, it is a sealed book to many of us. We don't look long and hard at this book. And so we deprive ourselves of its striking pictures. We don't hear its sobering question. Do you belong to the whore or the bride? Babylon? Or the New Jerusalem? Where is your allegiance? Really? What future are you headed to? The future is clear. And the present leads into the future. If we trust this book, then you and I know Jesus is coming. And we need to be ready. That's the message of verses 14 to 20. And we can ask ourselves three questions to figure out if we are ready. First, it comes first in the text and it has to come first for each one of us. Are you with the Lamb? Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. We don't have to guess what it means to wash our robes because verse 14 is giving us shorthand for something we were told back in chapter 7. There John was shown a great multitude round God's throne, the complete number of God's people. And he noticed they were all wearing white robes. And when he inquired, he was told how their robes came to be white. 
They had been washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. Now clearly, literally pouring blood on robes is not going to make them white. But what John saw was a picture of salvation. The Old Testament pictures us as naturally wearing filthy robes. Our hearts and lives are stained with sin. That might be hidden away from everybody else, but God sees it just as clearly as the clothes we're wearing. Our selfishness, our bitterness, our greed, all of it is in plain view for him, like we're wearing it. And according to the Bible, the only thing that can clean that filth away and make us pure in God's eyes is the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That's what blood stands for in scripture. Violent death. And in Jesus' case, it was death in our place. He had no stains of his own to pay for. He died to make us clean. And when we come to him, acknowledging our guilt and trusting in him, that's what it means to wash our robes in his blood. In God's eyes, we change from filthy to pure, from guilty to forgiven. And so even though we deserve to be outside of heaven with the sinners listed in verse 15, even though that's what we deserve, we have the right to the tree of life and all the other joys of heaven. That's quite a striking way to put it in verse 14. We have the right to those blessings. We can look forward to them without doubt and without hesitation. Why? Because we are not trying to earn heaven. Jesus earned it for us. When we are trusting in him, we can say, I'm sure about heaven. Not because I've done enough, but because he did enough. And we can remember that the one we're trusting in is the father's precious son. He's the one at the center of the Bible. His arrival was promised in the opening pages of the Bible. And just about everything else in the Old Testament points to him. From its system of animal sacrifices with all those slain lambs, thousands and thousands of them. The reign of Israel's greatest king, David, also points to Christ. Verse 16 says Jesus is the root and the offspring of David. He's what David was pointing forward to. And Jesus is the bright morning star. He came as the light of the world. And Revelation tells us he is going to be the light of the new world as well. If you're going to be ready for the future, you have to be with the Lamb. So are you. 
Have you done what verse 17 calls you to do? Have you come for the free gift of the water of life? Don't get confused by the different pictures here. It's the same truth. Whether it's pictured as washing your robes or coming for water. The one we need is Jesus. And what he gives us is life. Verses 18 and 19 give us a second question that we must ask ourselves. Are you living by the book? Verse 18 says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. If we are truly with the Lamb, then it will show in our lives. Especially in our relationship to God's word. God's people put themselves under the authority of his word. That's what they do. Now they may not find all of it easy to understand. But they accept the bits they do understand. They don't rebel against or ignore what the Bible says. They believe that the Bible's presentation of reality is reality. And they actively commit themselves to obey God's commands. That's what God's people do. And that's what these verses are getting at. But what does it mean to add or take away from God's word? Well, earlier in Revelation, we were given an example of adding to God's word. In his message to the church in Thyatira, Jesus mentions that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Jesus says the church has been tolerating this lady They're allowing her to spread her teaching in the church. And what she's teaching, Jesus says, is Satan's so-called deep secrets. Now, it's highly unlikely the woman herself used those words. It's unlikely the church would have tolerated her if she was as unsubtle as that. No, Jesus is calling her teaching what it actually is. It's from Satan, not from God. But it's being presented to the church in very attractive ways. This lady is offering deep secrets, inside information, special insights. The idea seems to be the Bible can get you so far, but I'll give you the deeper things. I'll give you the keys to really breaking through in life. And the fact is, we are all suckers for this kind of thing. The Bible doesn't always give us the neat and tidy solutions we want. It doesn't give us six steps to the perfect you. 
are four ways to the perfect parenting plan. Or the secret of always getting things to turn out the way you'd like them to. The Bible's message can seem very unspectacular at times. Stay faithful in the midst of suffering. Teach your children about God. Serve him in the situation he's put you in. Learn to trust his wisdom even when he doesn't give you what you want. That's what we find in the Bible. Then someone comes along promising to give us the prayer that will turn your normal life into a constantly successful and exciting life. And we go running after it. But that is adding to God's word, isn't it? Because his word doesn't give us secrets or special prayers that sort everything or that flip a switch in heaven. The Bible doesn't give us shortcuts or quick fixes. It tells us, be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crime. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, do not go beyond what is written. Which is another way of saying, don't add to God's word. And don't follow people who add to it. Well, what about taking away from God's word? That involves leaving out or explaining away the bits we just don't like. So we take away from God's word when we say, let's just drop all the stuff about God's wrath and hell because that's a bit disturbing. Let's forget the bits where God tells us what we can and can't do sexually because that might mean not doing something that we really, really want to do. Let's forget the bit where Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Because, well, we're pretty involved in storing up treasures on earth. Let's forget the parts that tell us not to compromise with Babylon. Because then we might miss out in this life. We might even suffer. All of us know the temptation to find a reason the Bible doesn't really mean what it clearly does mean. All of us have felt the urge to just quietly ignore the bits that challenge us. But God's people put themselves under the authority of his word. His word is what sets our priorities and our direction. And of course, obeying it is a challenge. It can be a great struggle. But it's a challenge and struggle that God's people commit to. Whenever we ignore or rebel against God's word, then we are putting ourselves in authority over his word. 
And so this is the question. Are you living by the book? Am I? Because if we are consistently living in defiance of God's word, or if what we are really following is some other word, then we are not headed for the holy city. That's what verses 18 and 19 tell us. Now, living by the book doesn't earn us the right to enter the holy city. Christ earned that right for us. We receive that right through faith in him. But we mustn't miss this. Living by the book is the mark of those who are headed for the city. So if this book is not the real authority in our lives, then we have to go right back to question one. We have to ask ourselves, are you with the Lamb? Then the third question, are you longing for the day? Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The novel Lord of the Flies tells the story of a group of schoolboys who become stranded on a tropical island. Their plane crash lands on the island and none of the adults survive. And initially when they pick themselves up and band together, the boys realize that their biggest need is to be rescued. They know they just don't have what they need to survive indefinitely. So at the beginning, all of their energies go into building a signal fire and keeping that fire burning day and night hoping that a passing ship or a passing plane will see the smoke. Their focus together is on getting home. But very, very soon, they begin to get distracted. There are shelters that need to be built. They need to go hunting for food. They need to decide who's in charge and who gets to give the orders. Those are all important things to do. And on top of that, there's lots of things to enjoy on the island. It's a tropical island. But those boys get so wrapped up in those things, they forget to tend the fire. And the fire goes out. And when a rescue ship finally does come, the boys have forgotten all about going home. They're caught badly unprepared. In fact, they're on the verge of destroying each other. Much of humanity is just like that. They've forgotten they need to be rescued. But as God's people, we mustn't forget. We need to be longing for the day when we go home. Now that doesn't mean we neglect our responsibilities. It doesn't mean we despise the good things of this life. There's so much that's wonderful about this world. 
God's fingerprints are all over it. There is beauty and goodness to be enjoyed in thousands of ways, in thousands of places, in nature, art, literature, music, sport, food and drink, family and community life, technology, engineering, architecture, science. And of all people, Christians should have an appreciation for good things in this world. Because we know the great God who stands behind it all. We honor him when we enjoy good things. And give him the praise for those good things. Christians of all people should be able to live life to the full. And at the same time, we will have a longing for the greater things God has promised. The new creation that's got all the goodness of this one plus. John Calvin said, God's people live with one foot raised. Meaning, we don't opt out of life in this world. We're involved. We realize God has given us things to do. But even as we have one foot planted on this earth, mentally, we have one foot raised to step into the next earth. And that is what stops us being utterly demoralized when things in this life pass away. When our health begins to deteriorate, we can't do what we used to be able to do. When our career stalls or even goes backwards, when someone close to us dies. It's entirely normal that we feel the loss of those things. But if we have one foot raised for the next life, then losses here and now will not destroy us. We will grieve over them, but we won't grieve without hope. And when obeying Jesus means we lose out in this life, maybe on a relationship, maybe on some kind of wealth, when we have one foot raised for the next life, we will be willing to pay that price. We will take the short-term losses for the eternal gain. Revelation is here to fuel our longing for the day that's to come. It makes no bones about setting our reward in front of us. It tells us, here is the future that outshines the present. Here's the future that makes it worth following Jesus. Here's the glory that will far outweigh your present suffering. So God's people serve God in the present. They enjoy his good gifts. But they also pray, come Lord Jesus. Finally, if we are ready for Christ's return, if we are with the Lamb and living by the book and longing for the day, then we can count on his grace. 
Verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. These final words remind us Revelation is a letter. It's not some sort of odd puzzle that's of interest to people who are into that sort of thing. This is a letter for the church. It's here so we can see the world as it really is and then live accordingly. And these last words remind us as we seek to live for God, we can count on his grace. He will give us what we need to persevere. Back in chapter 2, in his message to the church in Pergamum, Jesus promised to give them some of the hidden manna. The background to that is that in the Old Testament, God sent manna to keep his people going in the wilderness. It was some kind of wafery bread from heaven. And we've seen how the church today is pictured in Revelation as being in the wilderness. But God takes care of his people in the wilderness. He gives new grace to his people every day. When we look to him, we find hidden manna that keeps us going. Not food lying on the ground, but strength in our lives. Fresh grace for each new day and each new challenge. So we mustn't doubt the lengths God will go to to get his people to heaven. Remember, Christ's blood was poured out in order to purchase us for God. When we remember how much God has invested in us, we know he won't abandon us. So let's trust this book. Let's be ready for Christ's return. And let's count on his grace. We'll pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you for its promises and its warnings. And we pray that these powerful pictures will stay with us so that even though we can't see these realities, we will live by them. If we're not with the Lamb, help us to come and receive the water of life that he still offers. And if we are ready, help us to be ready every day. Help us to live with one foot raised as we wait for our King. Amen. Let's praise God for the Lamb who bought us and for the